You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everybody, to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, don't look now, but I think we've got 24 episodes under our belt. We've had, I think, 16 guests. Uh, people are still listening. Man, oh, man. I mean, I, think we, I didn't think we'd get through the first one, and here we are. We're going into the new year. That's like Hollywood, Mike. We're, we're stars. And <laughs> but our guests are probably the stars, actually, because they're hilarious. And I'm really looking forward to these uh, best ofs because there's a lot of a lot of funny things in there. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, we, we had some fantastic guests. The guys were great. They're very giving and sharing with their stories. And what we're going to do, folks, during the holiday season is we're going to play a best of. I mean, we had so many to choose from. Our poor old producer, Caitlin, has been working around the clock on this. So we're going to break this off for the next three weeks. You're going to listen to the best of the Squid and the Ultimate Least fan. Today, we're going to hear from Billy D, Jim McKinney, Paul Bizanet, old Biz Nasty himself, who's been everywhere. Or you got uh, Borea, who was live from Sweden when we talked to him, Bloodsy from Niagara Falls, and we had Ali Afridi. Uh, he was in Michigan, I think, when we spoke to him. So we had yeah. guys coming from everywhere. So... We have some memorable moments for you guys to listen to just on those first couple of ones. Any that stuck out to you there, Squid? I, I think the biggest one that stuck out to me was Jim McKinney. When, <laughs> when, <laughs> when the coach came in and gave him and his partner crap because they were minus three or whatever in the period, or minus four, I think it was, and he said, why don't you talk to the fucking franchise over there? If he had to stop a couple of those, we wouldn't have been a minus four. <laughs> <laughs> and he was pointing to Mike Palmentier, of course. Like, but that's always the way. Like that. Oh, I thought that was great. That was a pretty good one. So, folks, we've got some great ones listening to you. We hope everybody has a good holiday. But here we are. Here's our segment one. Listening to the best of and enjoy it. Anyway, to start right off here, I think what people want to know is, where did the name Squid come from? Oh boy, this is. Uh, we're going back. We're going back 41 years, I believe, uh, when I was playing for the Birmingham Bulls in the WHA as a 19-year-old. Of course, who was my coach? John Brophy. And uh, we were doing power play at one end, and everybody was kind of screwing around at the other end doing things. And it was our unit's turn to come down, and I was at the other end. So he was yelling. Of course, I'm, I came from PEI, so my Nick, they all called me Spud. And Brof is screaming and at the top of his lungs for me to come down, but he's yelling squid. And, of course, he's from <laughs> Antigonish, Nova Scotia himself. And Hartsburg, Craig Hartsburg says to him, uh, who are you calling? And he said, Vive. And he said, you mean Spud? He said, squid, Spud. I don't give a shit what you call him. He said worse than that, but I don't give a shit what you call him. Get him down here. So then I, I go on to Vancouver, and everybody just called me RV and uh, get traded to Toronto. We're in Minnesota, and Dave Burroughs is standing beside me in warm-up. Craig Hartsburg comes up and says, how you doing, squid? And then that was it. It just it stuck after that, and it's been there for, well, now 40, 40 years. Thrilled to join us on our, our inaugural podcast. And again, I want to throw that in, hopefully not our last. <laughs> that we've got 
One of the guys who's, I mean, he obviously he played in the middle with Rick a number of times here in Toronto. They hooked up together in Vancouver. Uh, this guy was just a prolific scorer himself coming out of junior hockey, none other than Billy Dorego. How are you doing today, my man? Good. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Now, listen, I mean, I got to get this one cleared up. I and mean, for those out there who really don't know a lot about Billy and a lot of these guys who don't know what happened back in the 80s with Ricky and, of course, with the 50 goals and Austin Matthews approaching that, Rick's record of 54, it's becoming more and more prevalent for people and they're becoming more relevant again. But I just want to throw these numbers at you listeners out there. So listen to this. In 1977-78, Billy D scored in 52 games, scored 89 goals and had 63 assists and was not first-team All-Star. He scored 96 the next year, so that worked, and that got him first-team All-Star. And that was a record in the, the Western Hockey League until Ray Ferraro, I believe, yeah. broke it. Yeah. I mean, and I, two of his teammates were ahead of him. So Brian yeah, Propp and He scored 96 was the record, and then uh, Ray came in and yeah. played for the Wheat Kings, too. Oh, did he? He yeah. played. In, he, he I didn't know that. 106 or something like that. I knew he broke your record, but I didn't know he played in yeah. Brandon as well. He played but. in Brandon, yeah, one I'm, year. Only played one now, year. Now, in that year too, you were supposed to be in Montreal. Yeah, this is a great story. Tell yeah. us this story. I was uh, went that summer to Team Canada Junior '78. That was the first junior team. It was at the Or Walton right. Sports so we, Camp. We went to the summer camp, and I met all the guys there, and Bobby Smith, and yeah. All the top picks there, and, and uh, so I was shy. I think I, I don't know if you met. So me. we were playing. <laughs> so we'll get so into I that. was playing against the Regina Pats, and the next day yep. I was supposed to fly to Montreal eh, mm -hmm. for the tournament. Yep, I got hurt that night and uh, hurt my knee, so I was out for the year. And they called up. Uh, did guess who they called? Replace me. Some sixteen-year-old kid, I Wayne believe. Wayne Gretzky. They called him. Uh, he was tearing up the Ontario League, I guess. And, mm -hmm. uh, it was a good good move by them. And a good move for him, too, also. I mean, because there was a guy that was, you know, tearing up the OHL. But, again, he was 16. People were still wondering if this was real or not or is a yeah. flash. And I know that a friend of ours played against him in Peterborough, and his dad was actually talking about sending him to Sweden to play in the Elite League to try and improve his skating. And then all of a sudden, Montreal came along. See, the, the draft was 20 then, eh? And to That's be right. 16 and compete against 20-year-olds, it, it was... Uh, but, I, you know, a lot of people probably don't know that, that he was supposed to be there. And that was the first year they, yeah. they picked an all-star team for the World Juniors. That's correct. And that was 70, 77, 78. Yeah. And then I, think, I believe after that they went back to the Memorial Cup winners for a couple of years and then decided to go back to the all-star team, and it's been like that ever since. But you imagine that. He was supposed to be there, and he got hurt, and Wayne Gretzky took his place. This phone rang about 5.30 in the morning, I guess, and, and he says, sorry to wake you up, but uh, I wanted to tell you before, because in Toronto, three-hour time change before it gets to the Toronto media yeah. and, and stuff like that. And she said, we just traded you to Toronto. I said, fantastic. You know, I, I was happy, okay, because yeah. I wasn't playing anyway. So yeah. a change is always good. And I was, and I, I, and as soon as I got to Toronto, Punch told me that uh, we're going to play. And he stuck to his word. And that's all any mm -hmm. hockey player wants is a chance, right? And he gave us the chance, and uh, so remember that I day. got a hold of Ricky, and uh, I think he said they had to be at the rink at ten in the morning. I pack our stuff, and he said the plane leaves at one o'clock. Yeah, I said, "Holy oh, jeez, we don't know when we're coming back, so you take as much as you can, I guess." And so it was election day that day. Yeah, so me and Ricky. 
a couple of young guys. We were sort of going to have a couple of beers on the plane, I guess. And <laughs> so we put up the hand and the waitress, and not the waitress, the stewardess. So I'll have, a, I'll have a beer and bring my friend one here. We've got five hours to kill here. So <laughs> the captain on the uh, PA goes, as, as welcome aboard. And uh, uh, today is election day and there'll be no booze served till the election is over or something. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, my God. <laughs> but it was a good thing that happened, okay, because we got off the plane and there was a few reporters there. So it worked out just fine. Yeah. So that was good. So now what about your version of this? So it's, well... Uh, Mine was kind of different. I, I didn't have a place. I didn't have a apartment or anything. I lived with Glen Hanlon in Burnaby because there was no nothing available in Vancouver, believe it or not, when I got there. Uh, so uh, I just my, I lost the guy's name. Uh, who was the little guy I room with? Gary Lupel. Uh, Gary Lupel. So we're going down. Uh, we get an apartment. Of course, the building's just being built. Mm-hmm. We're not getting in until February. So it's right beside Harry Neal's building, where he lives. So we get back from a 14-day road trip, and we finally get into our apartment. And it's like, so we had a little party, little little apartment warming thing. Phone rings, like Billy said, I don't know what, it was 6 or 6.30 or whatever in the morning. And uh, You guys are all still awake, by the way. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm sound asleep. But, all right. Uh, well, if you want to call it that. Um, but the phone rings, and I'm going, wait a minute. What the heck? Our phone's not hooked up yet. How can it be ringing? So I grab it, and I, I go, oh. And it's like Harry on the other line says, hey, Rick, it's Harry Neal. He says, buzz me in. I just slammed it down. I thought it was one of the guys screwing around, making, <laughs> joking around or something. So rings again. I realize it is Harry. So I hit the button, which I thought was the right button to hit to open the door. And then I go get Gary up, and I said, hey, we got to hide stuff. Harry's on his way up. So we, we're throwing bottles, beer bottles, you name it, uh, just in cupboards, anywhere we could find. And uh, then it rings again. And he goes, well, uh, you're not going to let me in? He said, forget it. Just come down to the front. So I go down to the front, and... Uh, I open the door. Harry walks in. He goes, uh, anyway, I just, I wanted to let you know that we traded you to Toronto and uh, you and uh, Builder Lego. And I said, really? I said, I haven't been here that you long. You just got there, yeah. And he goes, yeah, well, you know, and I <coughs> said, well, I said, who did you get? And he said, Tiger Williams and Jerry Butler. And I, I actually laughed. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to, but I laughed, and I don't think he thought that was very funny. But anyway, Billy picked me up. His wife drove us to the airport that day. Uh, and I remember the, <laughs> the thing on the plane was hilarious. And I, I heard, Billy, you actually offered her a little bit more money than the cost of the beer. Yeah, too, we speak. tried to bribe her with <laughs> federal law or something like that. been <laughs> arrested. So, Billy, you with, uh, I mean, you must have, I mean, John Brophy, okay, there's, there's, <laughs> Let's use this phrase here, a polarizing figure to, to, to describe him probably at the best. I mean, uh, he must have I'll some stories. i tell you stories. two stories. Okay? i got to hear these. The first one is, is the first game of the year, okay? Yep. So we're all excited and stuff, and we're standing in, you know, the little word by the stick room there. <laughs> and he says, Billy, uh, I need one more win for 500 and uh, pro wins, he said. I, mean, I look at him and I said, hey, 
That's minor league shit, okay? You need 500 more for 500, okay? You have no wins at all. He turned purple. You know how red he used to get? <laughs> so it wasn't a good start to our relationship. So, so a couple of weeks later, and we got the young team again. And so I'm a veteran, okay? And, and I think I just scored 40 goals or something like that. And I had 37 the yeah. year before. So life was pretty good. I was pretty good. Comfortable, let's say. Yes, that's good. That's good. And after practice, he'd say, Bill, I want you to go do a few laps. And then the, I want you to go uh, ride the bike, okay? I says, you got seven rookies in the room there that are playing once. You know, I'm a veteran. But I said, okay, I'll go do it. So I go into the room. <laughs> and uh, I grabbed a cup of coffee. And I, I took my smokes with me. Eh? <laughs> so I'm just sitting on the bike watching TV. And I'm having a smoke and drinking my coffee. And, he comes in and says, if you're not going to try, go home. And I just looked at him and says, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> One of the young players went to Jerry McNamara, who's a general manager, about Danny yelling at him. So Jerry, of course, went to Danny and said, you're not allowed to yell at the young players. So he took it out on on us. So we, Well, that's we, you, Billy, and Johnny Anderson. Well, this particular time, oh, yes. Oh, that time, okay. But... So we lost two games in a row, Friday night, or I think it was a Saturday night at home, and then a Sunday in, uh, I believe it was Washington. And Monday morning, you know, you get the paper delivered, and the headline says Maloney blames Durlego's line for loss, which was him and I and Billy. It's uh, not good when John Anderson. on the front page. No, <laughs> but I, I know that the writers don't make the headlines. Yeah. You know, it's the publisher or whatever, and, and, you know, sometimes it's different than what's actually in the article. But I read the article, and he actually did blame us and said it was our fault. So the next day, we're that day we're at practice, and uh, at, at the end of practice, blows a whistle, says, okay, everybody come in. And he goes, everybody off the ice. Walt Pudubny was coming back from an injury, and he said, Walt, Billy, John, Rick, you stay on the ice. I'm like, what the hell is this? Anyway, he says, okay, they're leg on vibe. Start, you guys start skating this way. And I, well, of course, I was really pissed off. And I shouldn't have probably done what I did. I mean, the press are right there by the boards at the garden. You and, shouldn't have done and, that. <laughs> but I said, I said, oh, I said, you got to blame someone, eh? Because you can't yell at the young guys anymore. So you're taking it out on us. And then, then I started skating. And he's chasing me. And he's yelling at me. I got scared. Eh? And I'm just saying, and, I, and I'm yelling, I'm yelling back at him, and I'm telling him, to "Fuck off, whatever, get out of here." And then Brof comes up to me, and Bro and Brof and I are, are friends, and yeah, I already played for him once. Hmm. He goes, "Squid, squid, come on, like settle down." I go, and I, I just gave it to him too, and I said, "You old," and I get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so anyway, the next home game, he benches the three of us. Halfway through the first, I think it was, he started playing Billy and John. He sat me the whole game. And I remember there was a guy up in the stands behind us, and you know how quiet the gardens could oh, get. Yeah. I'll never forget and that. And that guy said, hey, Rick, he said, you're not very busy right now. Can you go get me a hot dog? <laughs> and I wanted to turn around so bad and ask him what he wanted on it. But Danny moved with me all the way on, on the bench, everywhere I went. He had his foot up on the bench right behind me, and I was worried that he was going to punch me in the head or in the face. 
if I had a, got up and said that. But And then right near the end of the game, I think we were down two or three, and he put me out there with like half a minute left or something. It was a face-off in there, mm -hmm. and, and and I I wanted to ask him if he wanted me to tie it or if he wanted me to actually win it. And we were down two or three. I can't remember. We've got a great guest coming in to see us here today. Uh, Jim Howie McKinney, I mean, I think we could probably take up, uh, oh boy, probably do three or four podcasts with this guy, <laughs> some of the background stories he has. I, I'd like to see Gretzky play after eating a steak and having a couple of beers. <laughs> <in the room. laughs> I'll put Billy up against him anytime. And well, Howie, that's, any, a, that's a any good point. Uh, now, speaking of which, After Howie, a steak and two glasses of wine and two beer, I think, yeah, Billy would win I, that I, one. I, you go with Billy. Yeah. Okay, now, first off, now, just before we get started on this, like, just so you, and this is probably right in the top of your mind, right on the tip of your tongue, on March the 11th, 1972, so this day, uh, you scored a goal and you had an assist and a 2-1 win over the California Golden Seals. How about that? God. Yeah. Are you sure about that? Oh, yeah, actually, I don't. <laughs> In the who cares department. Okay. So how about I this? I scored first? a goal and assist against the uh, the Seals on the road or at home? I think that was on, their ho on at home. No, no thinking. Either home or on the well, road. You're supposed to know you're the guy who did it. Yeah, I don't know. I, so I answered this. I don't, for I don't us. even remember. Uh, I don't remember any of my career. Well, let me was, ask. Let me I was ask in you a this. fog for the seventies. <laughs> well, let me ask you. Let's, let's start off with this. Really, boy, he is. He is a beauty, isn't he? Yeah. Let, let's let's start off with this. Howie, for the listeners out there, how did you get the name Howie? Howie well, when I played junior, there was another guy on our team named Jim McKendry playing in the uh, the um, the Metro League, right? And he played on Neil McNeil with me, and so our names were so similar and he was a veteran so they had to get a nickname for me so i had a facial and behavioral uh resemblance to howie young one of the finest alcoholics to ever play in the NHL. <laughs> and uh they've been calling me howie ever since you know i loved howie too howie was great now the leafs you got called up as a junior like how was walk us through that experience or can you remember yeah well it, I, it wasn't such a big deal because every time I got kicked out of school, I'd have to practice with the Leafs. So I, I was sort of, you know, accustomed to being around the guys. Davey Keon used to give me a hard time all the time because he wanted me to move the puck, move the, he'd be screaming at me. Right? I never wanted to play for them, but I got a hundred bucks to, to play. So, you know, it was quite a thrill. So my first game I played, I, I went to the track in the afternoon. I thought I'd be a little too nervous to uh, to sleep, so I went down to Greenwood and then got to the rink at around 5.30 or 6 o'clock. I think we played against Detroit or something like that. But I, I don't, you know, it wasn't a, like a big, a big, big deal. I figured I was going to play in the NHL for 10 or 12 or 15 years anyway. So. But, you know, nothing to get so excited well, I mean, about. Well, you did. You lost it. Uh, it wasn't a, a big deal. Yeah, it took me a little while to get there. I was three years in the minor leagues. I yes, went so. to my first training camp at 215 pounds. My playing weight was like 185, 190. So I wasn't in real top shape. <laughs> so I lasted about a day and a half, then got sent over the um, Rochester room, and then eventually got sent to Tulsa. Now in Rochester, you're in with Don Cherry. That was person. later. That's that later was later on in the story. Yeah, it yeah. Let me get. That's to later that on point. to get to that. Yeah. Part. <laughs> oh, okay. I, got, I got kicked out of Tulsa first for being a bad influence on the other guys on the team. I'm playing with guys that are 25, 26, 28 years old. 
and I'm 19, and I'm a bad influence on them. <laughs> so they sent me to Rochester, which I was thrilled to go there because my best buddy, Gary Smith, was the goaltender there. Terry Clancy was also playing there. And uh, I knew something. I played a few games with Rochester when I was with the Marlies. So, you know, Al Arbor was there, and, uh, you know, I was the 19-year-old full-blown alcoholic, and then there was another guy on the team that was pissing and moaning about everything. And so nobody wanted to room with either one of us, so then they put us together, and I ended up rooming with Grapes for, like, three years. So how and was that? He resurrected my career. He uh, he gave me the confidence to uh, to get back on it. But he enjoyed you know, he, a beer he himself, He was fantastic, though. huh? But he enjoyed a beer himself, though, didn't he? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, he, he was pretty lightweight, you know, like <laughs> six, you know, after the game, you'd have like six. You know, I'd have six for breakfast. You know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, he wasn't a real a big guy. He enjoyed his beer and all the guys did, you know, but uh, I just, I got a little carried away with, yeah. like a lot of the guys were heavy drinkers, but they could always stop or moderate. I never could. Yeah, you know, I didn't. I didn't choose to be an alcoholic. I, I can't give you the date that I chose to be a an alcoholic. But uh, you know, I was at, at seventeen or eighteen years old. It was full blown. Yeah. So, like alcoholics, they know now are are driven by a uh, hundred different forms of fear, self delusion, self seeking, self pity. So I was carrying that around with me for you know another twenty, twenty two, twenty three years. Gary, Gary Axe, the Axe. Oh, the Axe, so okay. They, the, his buddy's out there in, uh, he lives in uh, Encinitas now. Or but that's Del a Smith Delmar. as well. The guy is just, yeah. uh, called Suitcase. Yeah. yeah. No, but yeah, they call him Suitcase out there, but his name is Axe. So what's, where did the Axe come from? The Axe came from a guy named Wilbur Mao who was a little challenged. Some guy was chasing Wilbur down the um, down Bloor Street. And, and <laughs> I thought with, you were with say an down, axe, down with an axe, the guy with had an, an axe. axe, yeah. And Smitty went out and tackled the guy. So from <laughs> then on, he became the axe. Mike Corbett nicknamed him the axe, and that's, oh, that's man. what we called him ever since. That's why they couldn't afford to keep guys like Jimmy Harrison and and uh, Paul Henderson, Davy Keon, uh, Lee. Ricky Lee, uh, Brad Selwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, Did you get a shot to go to WHA? Not to mention Bernie Perrant was a pretty good goalie, wasn't he? He he did okay. When he left here, he did okay. What about you? Did you get a shot to go to WHA? Yeah, I could have gone to uh, Chicago. They offered me uh, 750 grand for five years. If they would have had the money, I would have gone. (laughs) uh, I I think it all fell apart. I got offered that by uh, Johnny, too, that... He had uh, me and Ronnie Allison Henderson over to his place for dinner one night. And uh, um, Gord Lightfoot was there yeah. with uh, Kathy Smith, was his girlfriend at that time. And uh, I wanted to, you know, make a good impression, so I didn't start drinking until about noon. <laughs> and uh, got there at about 7.30, and I, I was flying pretty good. And we had uh, we had dinner, and then he called us into his office, like he had the, the, the office, yeah. you know, with all the the leather bound books and all that shit. And uh, he says, "Well, I guess you guys know why we, you know, why I, I had you here. I want you all to come and play for the Toros, you know." And so Henny says, "Well, we, you know, we'd have to talk to Al first. 
Eagleson. I, I said, uh, you know, screw out. What, what kind of money you offer? You know? so <laughs> he said, uh, 750 grand for five years. That's 150 a year. I said, if you got the contract, I'll sign it right now. Uh, but he could only afford to sign one of us, and uh, Henny was Mr. Canada by then. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, they, they got him, and then. But in the meantime, Ronnie and I signed with uh, with the Leafs for like double or triple what we were making before. So, you know, it was great. I thought I hit the lottery. I'm from Ottawa East, right? I'm making 120 grand a year. Holy Christ! Some of the characters in the game, like, did you meet any of your equivalents throughout playing? Um, Oh, no. Are guys like Derek Sanderson? or Yeah, like just some of the characters that you, you, know, you got to uh, chum Ian with. Turnbull. Was Turnbull there when you yep, were there? Yep, yep, <laughs> The Hawk. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was a beauty. Yeah. Well, it's funny. When he got traded to, stay, to L.A., he had to. I guess he owed uh, the government some back taxes or something. Oh, it yeah? Was quite a bit. Yeah. So we're in Colorado. And Jerry McNamara is the GM, and I forget who was the coach at the time. I guess it would have been uh, Floyd Smith, probably. Anyway, we're at the uh, one of the restaurants, and all the guys are there, and the brass are at, at a table there. So we're all leaving at like quarter to 11, and Hawk's sitting in a big leather chair with the arms and everything with yeah. a great big... Uh, uh, sif- snifter or whatever of uh, uh, cognac. Cognac, yeah, you like that and, stuff. Uh, yeah. And uh, he was still there when they walked out, and yeah. he got traded the next day, so he got his wish. And is there any one story you want to leave us with before you go? Uh, uh, but it's been very enlightening. No, it's, it's, I, lo- I love I love playing because of the guys. You know? mm-hmm. I loved all the guys, and and a lot of people. Have, wonder if you were really upset when guys jumped to the WHA and all that stuff. I, I wasn't really because uh, it gave more guys a chance to play. You know? And make and, more and, money. And, and, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Bobby Hull was my all-time idol. He did more for hockey oh, than, yeah. than anybody in the history of the game. We got paid you know, well to do it, too, know. though. <laughs> but, yeah. but still. I'm sorry, Mr. Bettman, but <laughs> you know, maybe you're second. Well, he's if, a if he was person. in my backyard, I'd close the curtains. But uh, <laughs> Bobby, Bobby was great. You know, Bobby, uh, you know, taking a chance and, and going to Winnipeg like that. If he hadn't gone, the, the league wouldn't have got credibility. Yeah. And, you know, and then Cheevers went and then, then Keon went. and Sanderson. Uh, yeah. So today our guest is certainly a social media sensation, to say the least, along with being also the popular podcast Spit and Chicklets, and also is the color commentator for the Phoenix Coyotes. But before all that, he had a long-time career playing pro hockey with stints in the National Hockey League. He played junior in the O, player of the game in the Prospects game for Team Orr, couple under 18 gold medals. Man, oh man, what a career. And then Calder Cup with Manchester. We're going to get into all of that with the one and only Paul Biznasty Bizonette. I would be very remiss, again, speaking to pick, speaking chicklets, walking right into it. The name today, the juvenile side of me came out right away along with every other guy with Seattle's name, the Kraken. I mean, this is going to be, I mean, this, this could be laid up on a tee for you guys with all the names and the fun you could have with it. Biz, I got to throw that one to you. Oh, well, I mean, we, we went through it when, uh, when the original expansion idea of going to Seattle came up and RA must have listed like 60 names off. And yeah, we were joking. I thought it was the cranking, cranking. 
and then they all <laughs> joked around about about crank yeah cranking it but uh no i think i think it's a great name i really like the logo and and how simple it is um in in the one uh, anchor they they implemented the the space needle in yeah. it so they just yeah. like there's a lot of thought yeah. that went behind it and you know i think it's great i think seattle definitely needs another sports franchise i'd imagine that considering they're getting the rink an nba team wouldn't be probably uh, too far behind it um, if, if they're looking to expand, I know they already had one, but uh, it, uh, it create the rivalry with the Vancouver Canucks. And I think at, at 32, that's the perfect size. I don't think you need to water it down the, the league anymore. Vince, you grew up in Ontario playing uh, in, in, in the O and you had some decent success. You're a good player coming up out of the Welland area. Um, first off, do you cheer, do you cheer for Toronto growing up? The Leafs? Um, I, I cheered for individual players more so more so than teams. But, yeah, I, I was a fan of the Leafs. I mean, my father watched them all the time. I was a big Doug Gilmore fan. I liked the way the energy he brought to the rink. And uh, I just, you know, I, I, I was a big Adam Foote fan as well. I just like certain players and, and the type of dynamic they brought. So, uh, yeah, I guess I could say I was a Leaf fan. I actually got a signature from Dougie Gilmore on a leather ball cap that my, my parents had got me for Christmas at the Penn Center in St. Catharines. And I had it forever. I had a Gilmore uh, jersey. So, yes, I, I would say he gra I gravitated to, to Toronto because of him. Coming from Welland, and it, it, the Toronto is so proud of their players. And what they are. How was that day for you, like, as a hockey player getting drafted? Oh, geez. Okay, so the, 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 the draft was in Nashville, and I was actually projected, I think, 56th overall. So back then, they used to do the first day, the first three rounds would go, and then the next day, it would be four through nine. And I think now the NHL's changed to only seven rounds. And, you know, I go there with my, my new suit and I was excited and I ended up dropping to the fourth <laughs> round. So I, I spent that whole first day with my thumb up my ass, Rick, and I was upset. <laughs> I, hey, I was upset that I, I, I didn't go, right? I, I felt like I'd let my family down and all my family and friends who had traveled to come watch that, and they could see how upset I was. But, you know, I, I wasn't a guy to sulk and, and suck on my thumb, so I ended up going out with all the guys who I'd played under 18 with yeah. um, and knew that night because they'd been drafted in the first two rounds, for, in first three, excuse me. And, uh, you know, we went out and got drunk. And I ended up, uh, you know, meeting a nice lady, and I, I played a road game, as they say. And I was roommates with Dan Fritchie, and he'd gone in the first three rounds as well. And he he took off. So when I went back to my room in the morning, and I woke up a little bit late, I had to go put my suit back on, and and go to the draft for second day. Well, what do you know? I changed out of my suit to go out the night before. My suit was gone. Thank God, my mother had packed my backup suit. But mind you, it was. A, <laughs> It was a, it was a who shot the couch. This thing was awful. Okay, so I I used to I used to throw my my dress pants of my second suit in in the washer than dryer. That's how that's how fucking bad this suit was. So I show up here with my hair uh, all curly and going crazy and in this terrible suit. And um, I was drafted by the Pittsburgh Penguins, who I had a great meeting with. Um, I let I let out a big yell when I was drafted. I was so excited to go to that team because yeah. I had such a good meeting with them. And uh, I was, of course, drafted as a defenseman and uh, ended up switching to forward. But it was, it was a weird day in Nashville, but uh, a, a great one at that. Yeah, I mean, survival, I'll start with that one. That's definitely – that's a great word to sum up my career because I was drafted as a defenseman. And, uh, you know, at first they were so stacked on the back end, Pittsburgh, when I finally signed my contract and turned pro that I started in the ECHL. 
And, um, you know, kind of going back to that comment I made about going to play single A as opposed to triple A, it, it helped me. I gained that confidence. I ended up being a two-time ECHL All-Star as a defenseman. But, um, you know, Rick, probably not as hard for you, but what I notice is that the higher you jump up, it's just the, the players are just so fucking good. And it was hard for me to, to become, a, a, you know, a dominant defenseman at the AHL level. And if, if you can't dominate the American Hockey League at your position, you're not going to go to the NHL and sustain an NHL career. So after going up and down a few times, you know, Pittsburgh, they called me back up to the American League that last time. And when I, when I got to the rink and my, my name, name and number were on the board, it was at fourth line left wing. And I think, the, no pun intended, the writing was on the wall as to, like, if I was going to make it to the National Hockey League, I knew what I was going to have to do. I was going to have to transform my game to what I thought was a, you know, a, a, a defensive defenseman who could add maybe a little bit of upside offensively to, okay, maybe you could actually get there as a fourth-line scrapper. And I, I fought a little bit in junior and a little bit in the ECHL, but my first two years uh, when they'd switched me to that position at the American Hockey League level, I thought, fought 30 times back-to-back, and I was fighting heavyweights. I was getting my fucking eyes pumped in, Rick. It was, it, it was hell. But did I want to play in the NHL or not? And I did it, and eventually I got to play my first game with the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, and it was, it, was, it was surreal. I got to play with Evgeny Malkin, Sidney Crosby, um, Fleury, Latang, like you, you name it, like legends. And, and uh, I got to spend a half a season with that team. Uh, Scotty Upshaw asked me, uh, you know, why don't you get on Twitter? You can really joke around on there. And I just didn't understand it. Um, I heard Charles Barkley talking about it, how stupid it was on ESPN at the time. And I'm, I, I, I agree with him because a lot of people, what they were doing is they were doing it to just update people being like, this is what I'm doing. This is, but then I realized that you go on there and joke around and interact with fans. So um, when I hopped on one summer after training, uh, it was this, you know, the season after we, we, we were getting some time off. And I remember Scotty Upshaw saying, I said, ah, I'll check out what this is. And it, it, it just became fun that, 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 you know, you could be that close with fans and, and give them a, a glimpse of inside the life of what it was like to play in the National Hockey League. And I didn't take, take it for granted for a minute. So I think they were just grateful that, you know, the, the fans were getting like, oh, like what's going on on, the, on their plane? And, you know, I'd be posting a picture of like on, inside the private jet or, or whatever it was. So they found it fascinating. It was something that happened very organically. And um, I'm fortunate because I think the, the one thing that a lot of guys, after they spend their entire lives doing something, is they don't know what's next. Half of these guys probably played junior and didn't take their education seriously because they thought they were going to play hockey hockey forever and the ones that that did is is you walk away with not a lot of life skills outside of hockey mm -hmm. well I was fortunate where I get to now stay in the game and and be involved in media inside the only thing that I've really ever known and, that, and that's hockey so um it, it took me on a wild ride and and you kind of alluded toward it toward it at the the end of your what we said about the last answer is the hard work is that's one thing that hockey taught me is you got to get up every morning and you gotta you gotta work that have put the work boots on. And I've never been shy um, to, to, to work hard. I kind of got that from my parents, especially my mother. And, uh, and it's kind of just led into what's happened post-career. And, you know, I, I couldn't be more grateful for it. Of course, at the NHL level, guys are, are making quite a bit of money. And uh, I spent that first year in the NHL up and down. I, played, I ended up playing 15 games. I was probably there for about 35 
and uh, had the chance to play with Evgeny Malkin, as I mentioned. So the following year, I was at training camp, and they'd, uh, they'd gone to the finals and lost to Detroit. And Malkin had an incredible season, hit all these bonuses in his contract. So I'm riding the stationary bike next to him, Rick, in, in training camp. And uh, the PR guy at the time comes over and he drops off an envelope. And, and uh, Gino, as we call Evgeny Malkin, uh, as he's riding the stationary bike sweating, he peeks in and, and, and you could see a smirk on his face and he puts it in the cup holder. And I kind of, I said, Gino, I said, what is that? And he goes, chick. I said, check, check for what? And he's like, bonus. I said, show me. And he kind of like, uh, and I said, come on, show me. And he handed it over to me and I looked inside of it just shy of a million bucks. I couldn't oh. believe my eyes looking at a check. I thought it was a phone number for, for crying out loud. <laughs> It was, uh, it was, although they are seven digits, but it was just shy of a million bucks. And I said, oh, my goodness, these, this, this is the National Hockey League right here. So that, that, was a, that was a quirky story that I had. Well, last year in uh, Buffalo, we were going to San Jose. It was San Jose's first year in the league. So we went out there about four days early. And, of course, we had stopped initiations and the hazing and all that kind of stuff. So what they did was if there was however many rookies they were, they would take the whole team out for dinner and they would pay for it. So we go to this nice restaurant not too far from the hotel and there's uh, LaFontaine, myself, Dale Howard, Chuck, and we're, you know, we're all there and the whole team's there. We have five rookies, I believe, at the time. And uh, so anyway, all of a sudden I look and I see good. A couple of guys are ordering Dom Perignon and, and like $300 bottles of wine. And, and I looked at Dale, talked to Dale and LaFontaine and I stood up and I said, guys, you know, be reasonable. Like, you know, just, I mean, $75 bottle of wine is fine, but not two or 300. And anyway, at the end of the night, the bill still ended up being like, I think it was $8,000. Oh my goodness. So those five, those five guys had to split that $8,000. But boy, it was a great meal. <laughs> um, the, guy, shrimp, the shrimp were about that big. <laughs> guys uh, taking advantage of rookie party, that's, uh, that's a, a tale as old as time. The, the worst one that I heard was Chris Bork. And I, I want to say it was in Boston when he got called up, and he was the only rookie rookie. They ended up racking him up for just shy of 25 grand. One guy. He was the only rookie on that on the t- now his his father's Ray Bork, so I'd imagine he's probably got a nice trust set up. So I don't think too many yeah. guys are yeah. are feeling bad for him. But oh my, some the surf and turf platters, the the expensive bottles of wine, the Louis that I I had a shot of Louis the Thirteenth at my rookie party. It was in Chicago, uh, but that they they call what do they call it? Uh, they called it a prairie fire. So they get me a shot of Louis the Thirteenth, but I think I, it was over a hundred dollar shot. And they doused the rest of the glass in uh, in in Tabasco sauce. Tabasco sauce, yeah. So I had to Where shoot this I thing. I I ended up going back I over. I got a good one for you. Oh Jesus! Light the campfire. You, you, know you know Darren Pang. Oh yeah. Obviously, you you, you work side be, beside him probably a few a few nights a year. So when I was in Chicago, we're in Hartford, which actually was Springfield because the roof had. Uh, Oh, no, we were in Hartford. And uh, so instead of them buying us dinner, we said, okay, we're going to go to the bar and we're going to drink. And the rookies, every 
I forget what it was, 15 minutes or a half hour, would have to drink a shot of Jägermeister. So one of the guys was chewing tobacco and was spitting in a shot glass and happened to put it on the table. So the waitress comes over with a whole tray of Jägermeisters, puts them all on the table. Time to drink. Panger grabs that glass and swallows it. (laughs) And I never saw a guy run to the bathroom so fast and puked his guts out for about 15 minutes and then came back and then grabbed one and threw it back and said, okay, I'm good now. And Panger all about what, five foot seven maybe? He ain't a big guy. I don't know. I don't Oh, he was a great guy, great teammate. Oh, he's great, awesome. Great that, uh, oh my goodness, that is disgusting. As always, we will watch with great hope and interest, but it's time to bring our guest on. So without further ado, one of the first Europeans to play in the National Hockey League, made an immediate impact with the Maple Leafs, becoming a premier defenseman of his era, inducted in the Hall of Fame in 96, 1996 that is, named one of the greatest 100 players of all time in the NHL, and of course, an elite Maple Leaf, one of the best of all time, known as the king. We welcome Borea Salming. Now, Borea, uh, you and Inger are flying to Canada for your first training camp. What was going through your mind coming across the ocean and flying into Toronto? Any idea what you were going to face? Well, uh, you know, what, what was good was because we visited Toronto, you know, before, like a, a couple months before, which was really good because then we saw the gardens, we saw everything around a little bit, you know, so... So that was really nice. And uh, they, you know, Jim Gregory and, and, uh, and Matt Harrow too, uh, and Jerry, they were so nice. So we, we really feel, felt comfortable to, to go over. But of course we, uh, I didn't speak good English, but I, that was the only regret when I was sitting on the plane over there. Cause I, I said to myself in the school, I said, uh, when I was uh, reading English, I said, what do I need that for? But when, when I was sitting on the plane, all of us said, holy shit, why didn't I feel? <laughs> what I remember the first time we skated in the, at the gardens, that was uh, when we were, we came four or five days before the training camp. And uh, we, uh, me and they asked us, you know, do you want to skate? Uh, you want to go and skate? Yeah, okay, we can go skate. So we, uh, me and Inge went out to uh, out on the ice, and then we saw everybody was sitting up in the stands, you know, all the, you know, uh, uh, Harold and everybody, I guess, you know, the whole day, I guess they were anxious to see us too, see uh, if we could skate, you know, at all. So uh, me and Inge, we told, we said to each other, we said, listen, because we have been skating with Brunus, you know, for for two months. So we really, we were really prepared for the, for the training camp. But we said, let's really show them now. So we skated like crazy, like crazy, shooting the puck and everything. So uh, it really tried to show them, like, no, we can play hockey. So, and I, you know, Jerry told me afterwards, you know, like many years afterwards, he said, listen, that time, because he was so nervous because everybody else, nobody else had seen us play. So why Bob Davidson? But, but then everybody sort of looked up to Jerry. Oh my God. They are good. <laughs> and we that, okay, yeah, well, what did I say? <laughs> How did you find all that when you first arrived? Did that surprise you or were you expecting that? No, not really. I mean, in, in Sweden too, like, you know, of course, everybody, they were not professional back home. Everybody has a job and work in daytime and all that stuff. So 
you can't go and have a have a beer because you have a practice then you go back to work for some of the guys but but in Canada that was really good you know like it's good to say you know that's that's really important to 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 join the guys and you know of course you see each other in the dressing room and everything but it's really important you know, off, off the ice and you know sit and you know have a chat and, and, and discuss the different things and that then you really get so much closer to each other and that's how you build a team I think and not just drinking beer but I mean I have a beer then everybody sort of relax and you know maybe want to say something and everything like you know everybody's listening to everybody too so we got treated very well Boria treated us extremely well and I remember Boria having a few parties at his house uh, to get the guys all together and so on. And uh, I remember the one time you had a beautiful place in Hyde Park. And I remember going into the kitchen and looking for a beer or something. And I opened a fridge and it was just all bottles of vodka, the whole fridge. <laughs> he had two fridges. <laughs> and I, I went, Oh, okay. This is, this, this is different, but, but you know what, that, that, Boria had those get-togethers to make us feel like we were all a team. And I, I really, really enjoyed that. I thought it was really good that he did that. And, uh, but you know what? I, it just made us all feel more comfortable. And maybe not the first year, but that was, that was tough. You know, everybody tried to get hit you and try to get, get you off the ice. But then in, when Philly got, you know, really, you know, when they won the Stanley Cup and everything, then, and really, really scared. Not, I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of guys in my team, too. They, they hated to play against the Philly because they were so rough, because we didn't have no tough guys. But then, all of a sudden, after a couple of uh, games or a couple of years, then we got Tiger and a few other guys. Then we had some more, like, you know, toughness. So then that was so much easier for us. Well, now, what about, okay, so let's keep on with that Philly theme. Couple of those playoff battles with you guys. Uh -huh. I, I recall one moment. I, I think probably the fighting moment for you. I I think watching you play anyway back in those days, the night that you got jumped by sucker punched and jumped by Mel Bridgman at the playoffs, and the yep. series was pretty rough. There was the battle in the penalty box. You know, Roy McMurtry report, the police charges, all that stuff. And it was just you know it was the way the Flyers were playing at the time, which was setting hockey back. But that's another whole story. But the following game, you scored a goal, a very emotional goal mm -hmm. against them. And you, like, you danced down the boards. Like, and I think that was a defining moment for you. I don't know if you feel the same way, but we're, all of a sudden the fans, they were totally bought into you. That you showed up, you got beat up by those the guys, like the thugs and the assassins. And you showed up the next game and scored a big goal and didn't quit. Well, that's true. I mean, I, either I was stupid or, or I don't know, but I never, 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 I, don't, I didn't really think of it. Like, you know, I knew they were after me. And of course, you know, after a couple of years when I was more offensive and was much better, they really tried. I knew that they tried to get me out. They tried to, you know, so I always say they tried to kill me. You know, I knew that, you know, when those guys tried to, to uh, when, when they shut the puck in, when, when they are Schultz and the, the, the hound dog or whatever they're called, you, I knew they were not going to like skate in with the puck. They shot it in my corner and they weren't going to fucking kill me in there. So yeah. I sort of jumped on the puck 
little earlier, I sort of, I could see that, you know, so I jumped in, they got the puck and, and then pass it out. And then all of a sudden, you know, when you pour check, you come in maybe one on one side, one on the other side. No, no, no. That was three guys coming right in my corner. But I passed it up and then I up with my stick and tried to sort of protect myself. But then we had three on two and stuff, so I knew that. Yeah, and do you remember that uh, goal you scored that I talked about? Oh, yeah. No, that was really fun. And that was a little bit what me and Daryl, we had sort of in practice, you know, sometimes I'd pass it up to him and i follow the play. And he went, you know, just a little, he did a little turn. And then he looked up and I went right in the middle of the defenseman and went in. I, we, that was sort of a play we had from before. So I, I was all alone with uh, Perron. And uh, luckily I scored. We've touched on the playoffs. When you went into the playoffs um, for the first time, the intensity level rises to a level that people just, it's, it's unexplainable to people unless you actually experience it. Your first time going through, did you actually sense that or did the players warn you that the intensity level would increase volumes when you started playing for real in the playoffs? Oh yeah, I mean, it's intense. You could see, you could see it in the in the dressing room. Everybody was just going like you know more crazy, and of course on the ice it was the same thing. You know, everybody sort of uh, you gave it more than ever. You know, in every game. But of course you have a you always you know got to play your game. Not naturally, you can't go all over the limit. But but of course it was sense, and you're going you were going extra somehow. Unless you have Red Kelly with the pyramid power, and then that uh, would solve everything, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they gave a lot of power. Uh, well, that was a fun thing too. I couldn't, you know, for, from the beginning. You understand what he was trying to do. I think he mentally tried to sort of get you a little stronger and, and better. You know, it, it works mentally, not not. You know, yeah, we put, exactly. we put the sticks in the in the inside it and everything like that. And uh, and I, you know, for me. I said, well, if that's going to help me, fine. I mean, I did it too. Like, you know, it, it can't hurt you anyway. So, you know, but then he had a, he had a pyramid in, under, the, under the bench too. So hopefully he gained some more stamina. I don't know. Did you do any uh, crazy things like that, Rick? Any rituals for you guys? Hockey players are superstitious, as we all know. Uh, what about some of the crazy things your teams have done over the years or anything? Uh... No, not really. I mean, we, uh, I wasn't a real superstitious guy. I, I'm pretty sure I put my equipment on the same way every single time. I don't think it was on purpose. I think it was just habit that I put my whatever left skate on first and would then right skate, whatever it is. But um, I guess you probably could call it superstitious, but I think it was more of just habit. But I would always put my, I'd take my stick the same way all the time and I would put it in a certain spot uh, just outside the dressing room before we would go out to play. So there was, yeah, there was a few things like that that I did and and few things before the game, I would always tap the post and, and in the warm up, I would always take a bunch of pucks around the net and I'd always, you know, go upstairs with them to make sure that if I ever got that situation in the game that I was going to get it over the goalie so yeah there was a few things that I did but uh, you know it's not something that you well those things I did on purpose I did you know purposely but some of the things were were just habit some were superstitious I, I wanted to ask you and I, this is something that I've wondered for so long but 
because it, Harold Ballard came to me in, in when I was 22 years old and he didn't ask me, but he, he just told me, you're the captain. Yeah. And my thought was, okay, if I say no, he's going to trade me. And I don't want to be traded. I love it here in Toronto. I want to stay here. Did he ask you to be captain? Because I know that Matt's called you when he was asked and you told him not to turn it down. Were you ever asked to be captain when Daryl left? If they asked if they asked me to be a captain? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, after Daryl left. Yeah. They did? They did. Uh, uh, not the first year, but after I don't know if it was the same year or the year after, he wanted me to be a captain. And they asked me actually twice, one one year, and I said no. Because they I think my English, I didn't want to be like, you know, out and have like speeches and all that stuff, a little bit like that. But also I knew what, what uh, Daryl went through before he left. And uh, I, I didn't want to go through that. I want to play hockey and not be like in between the management and the players. I wanted to be with the players. That's what I I love to play with the guys and play with, you know, and be with the guys. So I didn't want to be some somebody's, you know, who was, between everybody. So that's why I told, they, they had meetings with me and Harold said, you gotta be the captain. And I said, no, I don't wanna be the captain. So we, I don't know if we, we didn't have a captain for two, three years, right? So mm -hmm. uh, we had three A's instead. So, and, and I was the captain anyway. So I, I was sort of holding on to it anyway. So that was not a big deal really, but I didn't wanna be, go through what Daryl did. And I think that, that you said yes, that you, said yes to the captain, that was good because Toronto may be a captain with Toronto may please. I mean, I, if I look back, I should have said yes, of course. But, you know, there happened too much under, under that time, the, those two, three years when it, before Daryl left. I mean, there was no fun time, you know, not for, La, for Lanny Daryl and everybody who sort of got traded because punch. I mean, uh, and that has well, not my, Yeah, in my case, I, like I was 22 years old. I knew I wasn't ready to take over as a captain at that point. Mm. But like I said, I'm pretty darn sure that if I had told Harold no, that I, he might have traded me. And yeah. that was something that I, at that point in my career, I certainly didn't want to get traded again. Mm. And uh, so I did say yes, even though I, I knew that I wasn't really prepared for it at that time. But I had a lot of help from you and some of the other guys. And I think a couple of years later, then I was ready. Right, so Borea, uh, just uh, going back a little bit, uh, the 1976 Canada Cup, and you're playing for Sweden. Yep. And I was at this game actually uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens. The ovation you got before the start of that game when they introduced you, do you remember like, what was going through your mind standing on the blue line that night? Well, uh, you know what? First was the first game was actually with USA, right? And I got the standing ovation. I, I had no clue at all. I, you know, a little bit, you know, I knew like, uh, you know, Toronto, like they were so, uh, you know, Canadians, Americans. So I thought they like maybe, maybe boo me. And I had something like, that. I don't know. Now I hear, here I come in with, a, I have a Swedish sweater on and not uh, sort of a Toronto Maine police sweater yeah. on. So. And all of a sudden, you know, they started to, and I like they started to clap their hands and all the stuff when I when I came up from the bench. And then when I stand there, I said, "Oh my God!" And then all of a sudden, they're standing up. 
and I couldn't believe like they never st like you stopped either. So I started to turn around all of that, and then instead of I couldn't understand what they were doing. But that was amazing. Now afterwards, you know, I understood. You know, they really, you know, somehow they really liked me. You know, because you know I've done something good there. You know, that's what they wanted to show me, and I really, I was really appreciate that. But on the other hand, and I, what I forgot that when I played Canada, yeah, they did the same thing. Yes, and that game was that was worse because. Uh, Daryl and Lanny was playing in the other side, and I I know I don't know if they got a standing ovation, but I got a standing ovation, and more than like you know those guys who were Canadians and Canada is Canada, you know for you know the best team they have in in Canada. Our guest today was chosen by Chicago 28th overall in 1980 entry draft. Played most of his career for the Hawks. Coaching the minors along with the stint in the NHL with the Tampa Bay Lightning for a few years before embarking on a media career. He's a fellow author like you and I, and now spends his time running his foundation for the fight against Parkinson's. Please welcome Steve Ludzik. You met him on a bus, I think, one time. He was on a, you, went up, you guys were in a very competitive state, going back and forth at each other's, even at the 74 Quebec Pee Wee tournament. Yeah. And you introduced yourself to him on the bus, and he actually said, you said, I'm Steve Ludzik, and he said- Oh, no, 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 you still, I, I know why I didn't get it. I was at a Toronto Marley hockey game with my best friend, Johnny Kirk. That's okay. it, was it was a subway. Okay. And I, and, and, um, Gretzky was supposed to play Bantam against us that year. I played for the Marlies. He played for, we're going to play for that. And he came on the, the, the compartment. It was just him and a guy named, um, um, I can't remember right now. His dad on motor ski. It doesn't matter. And I said, that's Gretzky. I should have Kirky, my best friend. I said, that's Gretzky. I'm going to go down and wish him luck. We hope he, you know, we'll see him a long way this year. He goes, Ludzi, don't go down there. Don't go down there. I said, I got to go down. The guy's great. I go all the way down the middle. Of the, there's nobody in the car. He's sitting. Bruce Ivanish is the guy he's sitting with. And I said, Wayne, um, Steve Ludzi. And he said, I'm not Wayne. I'm, I'm Yogi Bear. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, oh, man. And it, it was just a... I walked back and my buddy Johnny Kirk said, man, he make you look bad, like really bad. And I said to Kirky, I said, I'm going to get him this year for that slate. If I don't get him in junior B, I'm going to get him in junior A. If I don't get him junior A, I'm going to get him in National Hockey League. Well, son of a bitch, I never got a chance to play. He, he played a year earlier junior, and then he went to National Hockey. We were still playing junior hockey. But... Um, he was, he was, I, I can't say anything. That, that was not like him. He was usually a pretty, um, yeah, a very nice man. And he, and he was turned into a, a great um, spot for the National Hockey Well, then you, that's where you got me. It was a bus, it was a subway. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, but then now, didn't you play against him in two hand him the first time you played against him? And, uh, yeah. And he said to me, What's that for? I goes, I, It was Fred Flintstone, he called himself. Yeah. Logie Bear. I said, that's fucking payback, Fred Flintstone. For <laughs> and he goes to Paul Coffey on the bench. He goes, your buddy loves it. Because you got like some screws loose. Because he tore, tore my hand off with a slash. And he goes, he, he just has a long memory. Michael, I want to tell a quick story if I can. about. Absolutely, you can. I went out for dinner with this gentleman down here <laughs> in New York City. And, and, and I didn't make a lot of money. I didn't make a lot of money. 
and I washed my my, my pennies as, as strong as I could. Yeah. And Dennis Savard, like they, they, we were a very close team, but you know sometimes you go to dinner and, and, and some guys go off here. Some, I, I go to chalet. But um, not that I, went, night. I, I go with Squid, Dennis Savard, and I can't remember who Dougie Wilson. Like that's pretty big company, right? And the bloody menu from Smith and Walensky, just the sounds of it, I know it's going to be expensive. And I'm looking at the steaks here, 60 bucks a steak. And the guy, the waiter comes over and he says, I, I really recommend the shrimp cocktail. And I said, 25 bucks for a shrimp cocktail. I bet you re recommend it. <laughs> and this fell off his seat. And uh, we won the next night in, in New York. Yeah. And, and oh, and Squid goes, see, Lundy, he always comes back to help you. You pay a little bit more for the meal. You got a goal tonight. We won in New York. Everything's good. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I learned the most of Squid. Uh, when you play against them, there's some guys you play against, you don't really realize how good they are. And there's other guys when you play with them, you go, geez, he's not as good as I thought. Rick Vibe was a guy that you didn't realize how hard he worked to score. And um, when you play against him, you should be honey. He was like Robocop in front of the net. Like he took beatings. And, and I think by the time you finish, you had a horse collar around your neck, yeah. armadillo <laughs> potting in the back. <laughs> it was, it, and they weren't, and, and he had a great shot. But I think I, I always try to steal something from everybody that I played with. And, and, and Ricky was always good to his fans, always a gentleman. And he, and he came to play. Now, what about some of the coaches you played for in Chicago? You played for some pretty fiery guys. So let's start with, uh, you mentioned Orville already. Let's go to him. Now, the players had a different name for him. I think they used to call him uh, Oral uh, Testicles. No, they used to call him Mount Orville. No. Bible <laughs> was spewing all over the dressing room. I didn't mind that, though. Um, I remember Roger Nielsen was our assistant coach at the time. And Roger was a technical guy, because Orville wasn't a technical at all. He, he fired in brimstone. And... We were watching the film and the shot from the point and it was right along the ice. And Orville said, that's where the puck should be right along the ice for a shot to deflection. And Roger, instead of keeping quiet, Roger went, well, we've done tests in Vancouver and you got to keep about three feet to four feet off the ice so it doesn't get tipped. Well, we had the coaches going at it right in front of us. Right <laughs> and when you know that a goal was scored right along the ice, and Orville goes, well, how about this goal? This isn't three, four feet on the ice. And Roger's like, yeah, but that's, you know, um, I, I, I liked, um, I liked Orville. Bob Pulford took over twice as a, as a coach and from his GM position. And they were all old school. Like, Squid, you remember, like, let's get our bag of flesh. We're not winning. Let's skate for an hour and a half. Squid and I were involved in the worst bag skate <laughs> I've ever been seen in, in captivity with Mike Keenan. Squid. The poor guy cramped up like a like look at like a shrimp and a barbie on the ice. He's in a fetal position, and, we, and I'm telling you, Mike, you a, a, a skating. When you were in trouble, one half the team comes up red, and half the team comes up black. You know you're in trouble. <laughs> and and Squid might recall Dennis Savard after about and ten. He wouldn't minutes, stop. He, this, he wouldn't stop. He'd turn at the end and do a wide turn, and Keenan would go red. Go, let's go again. Go again. And he did it three times. Sadly, he didn't hurt him to skate. And um, Doug Wilson grabbed Doug him. Doug Wilson grabbed him and threw him. Yeah, you remember that squid? 
Yeah, threw him against he the board. Threw him against the glass. And then Savvy went out of his mind. He really <laughs> overheated. He started taking all his equipment off, like something slap shot. Arm pads here, stick there, and he's yelling for dead and slept to open up the door, get me out of this place. And he literally had a meltdown. His, yeah. his gasket's overheated. Yes, today had a very short OHL career, along with representing his country at the 1984 Olympics, the USA, of course, I'm talking about, was the fourth overall pick by the, in the 1984 entry draft by the Toronto Maple Leafs, a solid ex-teammate of yours, Ally Afridi. Oh, it was just, you know, obviously, I thought I had worked hard, you know, and then when I got to the NHL, it was because geez, I, I don't know if Squid remembers our first training camp, but literally we were on the ice for six hours a day, man. Like the first week to 10 days, we'd have a morning skate, an afternoon skate, I think a night skate. It was, it was just unbelievable. And it was like, um, I thought I was in shape and I thought I had worked hard to get to where I was, but then I realized, okay, this is a whole nother level of working hard and commitment and, you know, understanding the game, learning the game. And then there was the whole aspect of how much more physical the game was, um, especially being in that division we were in. Um, realizing that that was kind of a precursor to what was coming. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a lot to, a lot to comprehend and, you know, um, internalize. And it was hard being 18, it was like, I'm fast as hell, man. I don't need to worry about anything. I just get the puck and go. And then all of a sudden, there's dudes that are 28 years old that are just as fast as you. So once they get two steps on you, you can't catch them. And uh, that was the difference, trying to learn that. Because in my mind, I was like, I can catch anyone. So if I make a little mistake, it's no big deal. And then all of a sudden, you know, Gretzky's passing it to Curry, Curry's passing it to Anderson, Anderson's passing it back to Coffee, and you're skating around like a madman doing nothing, right? And uh, it was it was uh, it was a lot of learning going on. So, did any of the veterans take you under their wing? Like uh, anybody coming? How did Twenty Two treat you when he first met you? Uh, it was great. Um, all the veterans there were, you know, happy, happy guys, fun guys. Um, very accommodating to all of us, all of us young guys. Everyone was accommodating. Um, it was, uh, but you're kind of in awe because, you know, six months earlier, you're watching all these guys on TV. And like I said, and it might be because I look at the world in rose-colored glasses, but I had no idea I'd be playing in the NHL. You know, when I was playing junior in March and April after the Olympics in Belleville for the playoffs. I had no idea or, you know, I don't think I was ever thinking about playing in the NHL when I was playing junior because I was kind of worried about what I had to do for the time I was, you know, the time frame I was in at that moment in time. You know, you may not have a job, but if you don't show that you're, if you, if you went on the ice smiling when the team is losing or you try to loosen things up, he's just crazy enough to turn around fireman, bring in a guy up the street to run the team. So, I mean, all this, the, the clown-like atmosphere that was going on in the circus atmosphere, that didn't help the situation, I'm sure now. I mean, as an 18-year-old kid, and all you young guys, it had to be pretty tough for you. So, I mean, uh, keeping all that stuff in mind, was there a moment in time or a defining moment is the word I always like to use with players is where you thought, 
you finally made it, you could actually step back and take a bit of a breath and say, geez, after all of this run I've had the last couple of years, I'm actually can settle in and just play hockey. Yeah, I'd have to say it was in my second year. That's kind of where everything got figured out. You know, I had a great training camp. And then I shattered my nose and cheekbone. I don't know, like the middle of training camp. And uh, they had to do surgery, so I didn't skate for like about a month. And uh, I, I got smoked in a fight. And uh, that kind of like woke me up and that, okay, you know, this is more about, this is, this hockey is, uh, this is serious. This is like serious. I've got to get tougher. I got to get stronger. I got to work harder, you know, cause I went from, you know, all of that and uh, came to camp a little out of shape. Although I was having a, you know, once I did get into shape, I was having a good camp and, uh, well, even when you weren't in shape, you were still the fastest guy. <laughs> anyway, so that didn't really matter. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was all those things called like it came to a, a, a head where, you know, I didn't come into camp in great shape. Came up, we, you know, came off of a really bad year where we had the first pick overall. So we were the worst team in the league. Yeah. Um, suffered a major injury and then you know it kind of woke me up that this is uh it's not la la land this is like real life and uh you know you're only as good as your last uh play thank god there wasn't social media then phones with cameras on them well i was gonna say you must have driven those coaches nuts with some of the index now there's a story i think You've told us in the past, I think, was it you and Reggett, you were yeah. late, or late for practice or close, close to being late for practice because you were playing cops or something on the way to practice or giving tickets out or something? Oh, pulling people over. So how did that all – tell us that story. Pull them over. Where but are you from? You just, like, over, you just pull over into QEW and just start pulling cars over? We had like a little fake uh, siren like Steve Streets of San Francisco. <laughs> what are you guys doing? People would be like, going to work. We're like, where do you work? They'd tell us where they work, and we'd be like, all right, carry on. And then we'd let them go and pull someone else over. It's kind of stupid, right? But <laughs> I guess when you're 19, it's funny. So, <laughs> uh, but didn't somebody get you at the rink? They, they found out you were doing this and said, what were you? Because somebody recognized you guys? Uh, I think Floyd Smith was waiting for us at the, uh, <laughs> at the door on Church Street there where we walked in. Like, what is wrong with you guys in disbelief that we were, like, that much, that idiotic? It was, like, a, it was a fun experience because we had an exhibition game my rookie year in Edmonton, and we actually won. They didn't have, obviously, their Stanley Cup lineup in there, but they had a few of the guys. But to see all the Leaf fans that were in Edmonton, it was like, wow, this is amazing. It was so cool. And uh, that was like, you know, that was part of being a pro athlete that I had never, you know, like I said, I didn't, I mean, I loved playing hockey and I wanted to be a pro hockey player, but it didn't define me or consume my life. It was, I'd have thoughts of it and stuff like that, but it wasn't like, you know, my dad making me shoot or run or do, it was, it was just 
work hard coaches. I had good coaches growing up teaching skills and all that, but it wasn't something that, you know, was this, uh, all day, every day, nonstop thing, you know, it was, uh, but seeing those fans and it was like, wow, this is, it was like, it was like a whole eye-opening experience of how great it is being a pro athlete, especially as a hockey player in Toronto. Prankster was probably Dale Hunter. Give us um, an example of one of his good ones. Now, JR, we got to tell you, Jeremy Ronick was on a couple weeks ago, and he, he faked his own death to scare a couple teammates one time. So, you know, that, that was a pretty tough one to talk. Yeah, I don't have anything that good. I just have I just have I just have when I had a brand new truck that I bought and uh Dale Hunter thought it was gonna be funny to get the keys from the trainer and perpetrate because Jimmy Wiseman, who was our off ice official, was in on it that my truck got stolen and I was freaking out. And Dale was like stoic. He, I never had any idea that He's like, oh, man, I can't believe this. He was like the guy, like, consoling me and, you know, rough, tough Dale Hunter being like a big brother, you know, because he was the guy. He was the guy that, was, uh, that did the whole crime. So it was, uh, it was pretty funny. Um, well, I, I think the best pranksters are the ones that you, you don't catch. Those are the guys that are the best prank, pranksters. Yeah. So he played that perfectly. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't I didn't catch him. I was like getting ready to start crying, and they were like, "Fuck look at this guy! He's gonna cry." <laughs> Better fucking tell him. <laughs> oh boy! So I, I gotta yeah. ask you. We just did a video thing for uh, you're involved. Well, maybe not this year. Well, obviously none of us are. We're doing uh, it virtually, but the Easter Seals and you and I and. There's a bunch of us that are heavily involved with them. We did a video, and uh, before we were all on the Zoom call, and there was Al with the convertible, burning the tires, saying, "Okay, I'm heading to the border." <laughs> 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 